You're listening to the RSA Conference podcast, where the world talks security. Hello, and welcome to October's RSA Conference podcast. This is Hugh Thompson, Program Committee Chair for RSA Conference, and I am joined today, as always, by Britta Glade, Director of Content and Curation for RSA Conference. Hello, Britta. Hey, it is good to be here with you, Hugh, and hello, listeners. We are just back from Australia, actually, where RSA Conference was invited to deliver Unplugged to the Sydney audience. We were there as part of their Cybersecurity Awareness Month, um, which is nicely coincides with the U.S. National Cybersecurity Awareness Month, and it's so great to have so much attention focused on our community. Today, we wanted to talk about the very important element of the diverse community that we have and the importance of the people part of teams and the culture that's developed within organizations. There's so much to celebrate, and we're excited to be joined by two very experienced professionals who are well-versed in cybersecurity awareness and training. We're going to talk about these different perspectives and specifically how enterprises can really thrive when they develop a diverse workforce. Perry and Prudence, we are grateful to have you with us today, and please introduce yourselves to our listeners. Yeah, this is Perry Carpenter. I'm the Chief Evangelist and Strategy Officer for a security awareness company named Know Before, and I have released a book called Transformational Security Awareness, what neuroscientists, storytellers, and marketers can teach us about driving secure behaviors. And I I guess one of the things that makes me relevant for this topic is that uh, in the the intro for that book, I mentioned for the first time in a wide public uh, way that I'm actually on the autism spectrum. So I was diagnosed a few years ago with Asperger's syndrome. Um, or what now is just referred to as, uh, as autism spectrum disorder. I've been really shocked by the response that the community has given any time that I mention that. It, it creates a lot of great conversation and increases awareness about the value of different perspectives and different personality types and organizations. Fantastic. Thanks, Perry. Uh, my name is Prudence, Prudence Smith. Uh, I'm a long-time security professional. I've been specializing in awareness and technical delivery of services um, for major global institutions and also advising on the uh, smaller SMB infrastructures as well. As I say, I've been in cybersecurity for a very long time. I won't even start to go on to about when I, when I actually began in the industry. Um, but, you know, the areas that I'm particularly interested in, uh, especially uh, nowadays, is the awareness side and how that has been missed by the community for such a long time and how that's been caught up with by our adversaries and what we can do about that. So that's what I'm all about. Oh, fantastic. Hey, well, thank you both for joining. And, and Perry, let me start with you. You know, this is such an important topic, and it's become a really hot one at RSA Conference. And you've done a lot of work in the security awareness space, particularly around diversity. And you know, just building off your bio, you know, one topic that you brought to light really is the importance of understanding neurodiversity. Can you just give our listeners 
a sense of what neurodiversity means and why you think it's important? Yeah, so I, I think um, it's one of those terms that kind of gets floated quite a bit and sounds extremely technical, but if you just break it into the component parts, it, it makes a lot of sense. So diversity is something that a lot of work communities have been concerned about for a while and in, in trying to express greater diversity and represent people of, of different colors and uh, races and political and religious beliefs and everything because we all bring something different and valuable to the table. Um, and so that's diversity in the way that most people think about it. But when you add this neuro piece on top of it, um, that, of course, gets to diversity of thought and the way that our minds work differently. And so over the past few years, there's been a little bit of a surge in people understanding the importance of bringing different types of thought to the table um, and the ways that people think. And so that is bringing in inclusion of people with uh, things like autism spectrum disorder and Tourette's and ADHD and, and other diagnoses, because even though those have been traditionally categorized as disabilities, when you really get into the detail some of the ways that people with these diagnoses think and categorize information and process and view the world is really, really spectacular, even though that the personalities present differently um, and the exterior can present differently. What we're moving into now in the century that we live in is that knowledge and information is the real power. And so different ways that people can process that knowledge and information and articulate that knowledge and information and build connections is it's really an untapped gold mine. And so I think that the increased awareness about that potential is causing people to pay more attention. Um, and then also just realizing, of course, that it's basic humanity to want to reach out and include other people and see the value in other people. And so that's a, a great combination of values that we can do because there's business value and there's a humanitarian value of doing it. Indeed. You, it, it's interesting. We, you know, the theme this year, well, 2020 RSA conference is human element. And there really was, there was an explosion of, of really thoughtful submissions that hearkened to the theme and really, you know, it, it twisted it and applied it in some of them predictable ways, many of them very unpredictable ways. But, but as part of that surge, we did see, um, you know, a lot of people representing neurodiversity and a lot of references to, yeah, as, as opposed to a disability, almost a super ability because it really does bring a different lens to how things are approached. Um, I, I wanted to, Perry, again, going to your introduction um, and some things I've read about you and your perspective, you've noted that it's important to understand that autism is a spectrum. Can you maybe enlighten our listeners, maybe some of the misconceptions and challenges that you've dealt with when it comes to understanding people with autism? Yeah, so let me um, maybe broaden that even a little bit more. You know, when I wrote that in the intro to my book and mentioned that and then sent that chapter in to my editor, I had this sinking feeling in my gut of, oh my God, what have I done? Because it's hard to take that back at this point. And the exposure is just out there. Um, but 
on the other side of that, there's been a, a lot of uh, rewarding input. And the reason that I felt like I could put that out there in the first place is that I am secure in my job now. I've got a good reputation in the community, and I don't feel like I've got much to lose by talking about it as openly as I am now. 20 years ago, that was a completely different story. Um, and I didn't even have the diagnosis then. I didn't know what I had, but I knew that I approached the world differently and that I was socially awkward. And, and anytime you put a label on something and you have a word that defines it, that has the word disorder or disease or you know, something else with that, there's the fear of a stigma. And then the public's way of viewing those and categorizing those within popular fiction and movies and media and all that can either help or can hurt the understanding of it. And so when you look at something like autism and the spectrum, when I say autism to one person, they may have a view of a child that's you know banging their head against the wall and is completely nonverbal and is um, self-stimming, you know, flapping their hands or, or things like that. And that's one presentation of autism. And that person, even though they present that way, may have an incredibly gifted mind, or they may not. We don't know anything about that person. Um, you have another presentation that's like uh, the, the old movie Rain Man that had Dustin Hoffman, um, who, if you threw something on the ground, could see these several hundred items that had just fallen on the ground and immediately add them up and, and know the count that was there. But he had a number of verbal tics and other ways that he was not able to communicate. And then you have people kind of like me who have learned how to adapt to most of the world, and I can carry on lots of different conversations and can work well in great work environments and, and all of that, um, but I do have some social issues that I have to get past. And I view the world in an interesting way and articulate things in a different way than most people would as well. And so, you know, I just mentioned three examples, and there's a great variety in those three examples. And there are, of course, people out in the world as well who are doing great things and blending into society well um, that are diagnosed with autism as well. And a lot of people speculate that um, people like Bill Gates and uh, Mark Zuckerberg and others would be diagnosable, but I've not seen them speak publicly about that, so I can't speak with authority. But there is a spectrum, and the danger is when somebody looks at one presentation and that they assume that because they've seen one person with autism that they understand all people. And I flash back to one news story that I saw a few weeks ago. You know, there's been a a little girl um, who's a climate change activist that made a kind of a media splash a few weeks ago by speaking, and um, it came out that she had Asperger's syndrome as well. And there was a, somebody on a news commentator that said that she was mentally ill um, as they were trying to discount her argument. And that's exactly what we're trying to get past. It's not necessarily a mental illness. It's a different way of approaching thought and the world and using different filters and different uh different ways of categorizing information and putting information together. And so there is still that stigma that people can bring forward. And um, what we see is that that's the default way that humans work, is that we like to put people in categories and we like to put labels with those categories and assume that we understand things when really the richness of information and experience defies many of the labels that can exist. 
Perry, I couldn't agree with you more. And thank you so much for, for sharing that and sharing your experience. This is such an important topic. And, and Prudence, I wanted to ask you, you know, there are so many facets to a diverse workforce beyond gender and race. And we, we've, we've talked about neurodiversity so far. And I, I can't think of a field where it's more important to have diversity of thought than security. So I'm, I'm wondering, can you talk to our listeners about why diversity matters? But I think the other question is maybe even more important, which is what kinds of challenges do companies face when they have a non-diverse workforce? I think that's probably the critical one. You really do need diversity in an organization. I've been in the field uh, since the early 90s. Before it was even a field in itself, it was just this made-up uh, made uh, role that people laughed at me about. Um, but it has come more and more. And, you know, when I went into the field, people were sort of, you know, you fell into it. You didn't, you know, it wasn't a career because it wasn't a known uh, path. It was very much about people falling into it. People got into the role. I myself got into the role because we had a virus outbreak in our organization, and I was proficient enough to be able to uh, cleanse that. That was back in the days of Dr. Solomon, uh, for those that remember that. And what you find is that because you've got people who are falling into that, you're going to have people from the police, you've got people from uh, the military, you've got people such as myself who have come up through uh, government initiatives and such like. Um, when I see organizations who are recruiting only in their own image, I know that there is, you know, when we're talking about management and organizations, people like to go to what they uh, gravitate about. And the key to when we're talking about uh, cybersecurity and when you need to have, uh, you know, you need to have a robust. We've got to mirror what the criminals are doing. And what they're trying to do is get into your organization. They're trying to take your data, take your IP, steal money, commit fraud, do all manner of different things. And what you've got to remember is that they have got the time and resources to be able to do that. The likelihood of them being caught for prosecution is actually quite low due to the global restrictions of uh, cyber. And, of course, when you've got a criminal organization, you've got to think about how are we going to do that. Now, if you're only recruiting in your own image, you're not going to be able to see the full spectrum. You don't know what you don't know. Um, I've been in situations where I have been talking to companies where we've had strategists who haven't known about advanced persistent threats. You know, so it's really key that when we are dealing with uh, security, that we do have that fully diverse organization. You know, what, what Perry talked about earlier, that it took time for Perry to be understood. I would say that that is still the majority of cases of people uh, within the field of cyber and information security. I would say that autism is actually somewhere on the spectrum in the majority um, of the people that work there, if I can say such a thing. Yeah, I mean, um, I'll chime in there for a second. I gave a, uh, a presentation at DEF CON at the SE Village this year, just to I think the title of it was the, the Aspie's Guide to Social Engineering Your Way Through Life. And I just talked about kind of my path through life and career in the way that I unintentionally and intentionally used uh, social engineering types of skills in order to advance myself, of course, in an honest way, Um 
but the way that I would put on a mask in, in order to blend in in whatever environment that I'm in, the way that I would use different skills in order to increase my ability to uh, work within the, the social structures that I was in and, and so on. And throughout the presentation, a huge amount of the audience was responding uh, positively to that. But the line coming to speak to me after that presentation had so many people in it that were opening up about their experiences and their fears and all of those aspects of, of their lives about the, you know, the little pieces that they were hiding about how they view the world or how they don't feel comfortable in these situations and so on. It was, it was a, a huge response. And so I would say when you're talking to a highly technical crowd, there's always a chance that there's a greater representation of people that are on the spectrum within that crowd than there are in normal everyday society, um, which means that when we're talking about cyber criminals, we're talking about, for the most part, highly technical people as well. So there's going to be a greater percentage of cyber criminals who are probably somewhere on the spectrum. And the only way to combat that prudence, as you mentioned, is to be able to mirror that thought in some way or be able to anticipate that thought, which means that somebody on the spectrum is probably going to be the most likely person to do that. Yeah, I think we also have a problem um, when we're, we're talking about a large organization, you know, with the recruitment processes that we have. And I think some changes have got to be made there, you know, because how do you know that you have autism? I think that's the main thing. You know, it does take time to be uh, diagnosed. Um, just because you have these traits doesn't necessarily mean that you are like that. You know, it's socially awkward. I can be socially awkward. I have just been just now. <laughs> so <laughs> what we need to do is we need to change our recruitment processes. We need to change, you know, the way we're advertising for these roles. You know, putting people into, uh, you know, an interview with, you know, five different people, you know, and asking them to put them on the spot, you know, that, that really is gearing up to a specific kind of person and you're going to miss out on those people because they're going to be put off by that interview process. And even ongoing into, you know, uh, annual assessments and reviews and the ways of working, we just need to relook at that because we need to tap into this commodity. It is a commodity. And if we look at cybercrime and we look at where the projections with cybercrime, it's only going up. You know, we're only losing more and more money all the time. It's in the trillions, it's estimated now. So we have to do something about it. And not tapping into that environment is contributing to this issue that we have with losing so much money to cybercrime. Yeah. So I appreciate very much that you touched on, you know, the recruiting aspect, the how do we recruit effectively for different types of people. And I, I would argue that a lot of what you just talked about applies beyond just an autism diversity factor. It's a generational diversity factor. It's a geography. It's a, you know, the, the takeaway is behave differently from a recruitment standpoint, from an interviewing standpoint, from a management based on the diverse workforce that we have. Um, you gave some great guidance there. What I'd love to have some discussion around um, for both of you, actually, is, um, you know, we know skills gap is a major challenge for organizations. Um, so where is the talent, and how do you tap into it? Prudence, let's start with you. Where do you find it? Yeah, well, it's very difficult. I remember putting up a role for an assistant uh, to join me. I didn't have a single applicant. I had to call around my friends and uh, really push it out there, and I was quite surprised that I didn't actually have that. And it made me rather concerned as well 
But then I came across something called the Cybersecurity Challenge UK. I don't know whether you've heard about that in America. They are doing European ones. I believe that America took part in an exercise last year. It's a method that you can now do this recruitment, find this talent online by participating in uh, challenges. So, for example, uh, I created a financial war game, uh, defense-driven war game, so that we could identify uh, talent within the UK to join in the future, either now or in the future, depending on where they were with their studies. Uh, and that was a really good way of identifying the talent that was out there. There was a side effect from that that was really interesting. So I did this war game. It went on for a day and a half. It was around a defense and attack situation. And what I discovered, uh, because we, we created quite an intricate scoring board, so you could see how well they were defending a live attack uh, as it happened. Now, it was quite a technical challenge. It was, you know, technically very hard. Um, and what we saw that everybody in the room, so 100% of people were 100% at attack but not 100% at defense. Not one person in the room could defend. And that really identified that we are failing in an area where we're not even training, you know, the people that are coming up through the field who are interested in this. We're teaching them how to attack uh, because that's, you know, the way that uh, they have access to systems and the way the internet is held. But, you know, we're not gearing up to help people uh, who are going into defense and we really need, you know, it's important to know how people attack, but it's also important to know how to defend as well. So, you know, it's a growing area, going into challenges such a, like this, and I know that it's not just uh, the cybersecurity challenge that are doing this, but they are global organizations that are doing it. You can tap into that. That will get you access to the people that are possibly outside of the mainstream universities. But I would say if you're going to go down the university stream, you know, look at your uh, computer science uh, degrees, look at your behaviorists as well. You know, that's a big area that's happening in cyber, mapping out how humans react. You know, what are people doing, their attitudes towards online access and their data that they hold? Does that answer your question <laughs> in a roundabout way? <laughs> Absolutely. No, I think that's great. And, you know, actually that brings another question to mind, which is if you are trying to defend yourself against, as you put it, Prudence, a very diverse set of attackers that have no rules, no boundaries, I wonder in this area in particular, in a neurodiversity area, and maybe, maybe Perry, I'll throw this question to you. How is it that you can know that you're building a diverse team, a neurodiverse team? How do you measure it? Like if you were giving advice to a company, how do you give them the ability to see that they actually do have a well-rounded team? That's, I think, going to be a very important question going forward. Yeah. Right before I jump into that, I want to mention one thing on the defense side that, that ease off of, of Prudence's challenge <laughs> to, to people. Um, you know, one of the things on the defense piece is that it's always harder to defend than it is to attack. And I was talking to a guy a couple of weeks ago who was about to join a military program um, to do cyber ops. And um, what he said was really instructive. He said, they're either going to send me on the offense piece or the defense piece. The school for offensive warfare for cyber is 12 months. 
the school for defensive cyber is 18 months because the skills to defend are a lot more robust than the skills to attack. And so I, I think that that's important for us to understand as a society when we start to build more defensive programs. It's easy to start to break holes into things. It's much more difficult to start to build up a robust defense. Now, kind of pivoting into your question on, you know, how do we know that we've arrived when it comes to building a neurodiverse workforce? I think that that's a great question. It's also a scary question because you start to get into things like um, profiling metrics and, and everything else around it. So we have to play lightly around that because we don't want to prejudice either side of the way that we approach hiring. Um, but I do think that we have to be really intentional about how we do recruiting and how we do the selection process and go through interviews and everything else because we unintentionally, in many ways, prejudice the process by defining a process that mirrors the types of people that we've been hiring for years or the type of person that I am. If I'm building a process, I'm naturally going to have blind spots, and I'm going to build that process the way that I would want to follow it. And so um, being able to ebb and flow with the individual recruit or within the job task that you're trying to fill, I think is really important because you might do your initial one-on-one with somebody and see that that person has a really you know difficult time with eye contact or that they have a hard time articulating thoughts, but then you look at their, let's say this person's been in the field for 10 years, you look at their resume and they've done amazing stuff, or they're just coming out of college and they've got a, you know, close to a four point, they've been doing really well in their studies and they've got some amazing classes and, and experience. You have to understand that there's a lot more richness behind that person than that initial conversation can ever reveal. And, when we get into understanding the way that we accidentally prejudice things using cognitive bias, we do have this idea of a halo effect or a devil effect. If uh, somebody presents themselves in person to us, you know, really great the first time, we tend to give them the benefit of the doubt whenever they're not doing as well later on. Or when somebody doesn't live up to our expectations the first time we meet them, we intend to prejudice every other interaction with them based on that initial way that we viewed the first one. And so we have to find ways of breaking out of our own cognitive biases and building maybe some blind assessments um, where we're looking at the actual skills that we're trying to fill rather than just looking at the personality that's going to fill them can be important. Um, If there's a personality-driven job, of course, then we have to look at things like that. But if it is a hands-behind-the-keyboard um, stock analyst type of role, then, yeah, there's a certain set of skills that come with that. Let's primarily look at those first and then look at can this person interact well with the team um, and then look at can this person you know, potentially thrive within our organization if we set things up such that they have the most you know, best likelihood to succeed. And I think we'll know that we've arrived when we start to look around our environments and we start to see some of the different people that we've hired and realize that, you know, let's say five years from now, that the rooms, that, you know, the, the, the people that are filling the rooms that we're in um, 
don't necessarily look or interact the same way that they had traditionally. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm loath to put metrics in place or things like that because I think that that opens up a can of worms that uh, we might not be ready to deal with effectively. Indeed. Prudence, thoughts to add to that? This has been a great conversation. Yeah, I would say stand up and look around. If you're surrounded by white-haired male Caucasians, you have a diversity issue. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I, I say that as a white-haired Caucasian. Yeah, absolutely right. There is nothing wrong with being a white-haired male Caucasian. Um, and it's just that when, you know, when I started off in the field, I was very much the uh, sole female, you know, being asked to make tea and such like. And that went on for many, many, many years. Uh, and it's only over the last couple of years that we have opened, opened the diversity doors because we've had to, you know, because, uh, you know, beforehand, a couple of years ago, we didn't really like to talk about security, security through obscurity. Um, but now, you know, we've got the figures being released. We know so much more. We know how things are doing. We know how the criminals are operating. Um, you know, there are more and more studies going out there. And thanks to books like uh, and the work that Perry is doing, you know, I mean, it's the knowledge that we're now gaining compared to a few years ago has grown so much. But, you know, on the on the other side of that, we have had to open the floodgates um, to non-security people. Now, that does come with a, a sort of challenge within that because, you, you know, there are only a certain amount of people around who can do the job. You know, there have been studies in America about there being a, a massive shortfall of cybersecurity professionals. So that is going to drive more people into the field. But what we've also got to be careful about, you know, is making sure that we do have that diverse, we do have that cross-section. You know, if we are opening up to people who are not well-versed in technology uh, or in risk or compliance or, you know, all of these functions that we need, or then we've got to be careful about where they're going to recruit. Security, you have to have a certain mindset in the fact that, you know, you have to be interested, you have to be curious, um, and you've got to be determined. Uh, and that's going to put a lot of people off. You know, it's not a nine-to-five job uh, for most of the time. So I'm just saying that when you're coming into the field, you know, I fully immerse myself in the roles that I do because I find it such a fascinating field. But you are learning as you go along. Uh, so it's about finding the people that aren't going to show the arrogance, that, that they're not going to get involved in the nitty-gritty, that are, you know, are open. And that can come from any field, whether that's male, female, race, creed, anything. It's about finding the best person for that job. You know, I, I think that some of the cyber skills gap, when we talk about it, we, we make it this big thing. But I think it is a problem that we've created in that, yeah, there's there's probably a technical skills gap that exists, but there's also a ton of roles that we can fill if we just look outside of the uh, the traditional degree programs. So I think we have to have diversity of understanding of the types of disciplines that can come fill and augment security. Uh, because if you get somebody that's got a marketing program, well, they understand the fundamentals of security awareness. They also understand the fundamentals of um, helping to really try to change behavior or work with people or influence thought. And so that's really important uh, within a security organization. You can recruit from people with psychology degrees or um, economics degrees because they understand how systems work together um, and how people work together. And so those initial filters that we unconsciously put in all throughout the recruiting process, yes, they affect 
people with diagnoses and people that don't look and sound the way that we do, but they also affect a lot of those other areas that I think we're, we're blind to because we, we typically say security, this must be a technical person. And um, when we look at a lot of the aspects of security, yeah, there's the technical aspect, but there's also just a lot of skills that other people can bring to the table that aren't necessarily restricted to the, the bits and bytes. Absolutely. Well, this, this has been a really rich conversation. Um, lots of good guidance from both of you. So thank you so much, so much for taking your time and, and, and sharing this. I do believe, um, you know, it's a capital, capital D diversity and diversity coming from so many different places, so many different layers. And, and, you know, we, we've seen also in the submissions an argument that there's actually not a skills gap. But actually, it's, you know, where are we looking and how are we doing it? And I think both of you delved into that very nicely. I also, I hearken to my, I have a, a daughter, my youngest, we're in the college search process right now. She's, well, she wants to be a theater major, um, but looking at liberal arts and a large conversation around, hey, with the liberal, you know, ability to learn shows that you're able to learn and grow and do different kinds of things. Um, so, you know, mm-hmm. I, I'm taking all kinds of parenting notes as you're having this conversation as well, because there's, there's good guidance that applies everywhere. Um, so thank you very much, Prudence and Perry, for joining us. Uh, Hugh, thank you also for being my co-host on the show. Um, thank you, listeners, for being here. Uh, hopefully we'll see many of you at RSA Conference in San Francisco and joining the podcast all along the way. Have a wonderful day. 